Walking with Others. Welcome to One Foot in Front of the Other, a series about walking. As you listen, go out for a walk or a roll or a sit, or stay where you are and come on a walk with me instead. I'm going to talk about what walking has been like over the last year or so, how it's changed, how it's been painfully unchanging, and some of the things I've seen, heard and found out along the way. A note on content. In this episode, I talk about being ill with COVID and being in pain. I'm going on a walk. Do you want to come with me? While most of my walks over the last year or so have been alone, my favourites have been with other people. When we couldn't meet indoors, one of the only ways to see other people has been to go for a walk. There's something so unfair about the only allowed social contact for months being walking, when walking is difficult and painful and sometimes just plain impossible. I realise this isn't news to many of you. There are days when I've dragged myself to a park to see a friend when really I should have stayed in bed. Lots of us in the last year or so have been a bit starved of social contact. I'm grateful that we've got FaceTime and Zoom, but a screen is no match for real human connection, is it? When each day feels exactly the same as the last, I find myself craving the fun, energy, laughter of other people. Sometimes all I want is a hug, to feel warm and safe and comforted. I wonder if you've felt this too. But being able to go for a walk with friends has made even a tiny bit of this crucial connection possible. It stopped me from getting completely lost inside my own head. Something happens to our conversations when we're walking. When we don't have to face each other when we're doing the same thing. Trying to match each other's pace. Trying to stay close enough to talk to sense each other, but not close enough to bump or catch Covid. Synchronous walking is a form of social communication. When you walk with someone else, sometimes your steps sync up subconsciously when you're feeling really connected. We're less self-conscious. We're focused on other things more, so there just isn't as much room to edit yourself, to worry. We talk about things we wouldn't normally talk about, share things we probably wouldn't otherwise share. We don't get stuck in the same ways as we would if we were talking face to face. In a year where lots of us have spent huge periods of time by ourselves, going on a walk with a friend means we can move forward, means our steps can map out a relationship, means we can sustain a sense of self by being with another. But today, I am tired, and I can't form my thoughts into words. There are images, there are feelings, but all my energy is focused on making my feet keep going. Sometimes, walking together in silence is lovely, Sometimes when we run out of things to say, pointing at something beautiful and saying, look, taking the time to share it with you feels like a way of caring. Look at that dog. That bird, what is it? That first blossom on a tree. The first snowdrop. The first, what is that, a crocus? The city poking through the clouds. The point we're heading to, the point we've just come from. The view ahead, which I'm pretty sure you've seen as well, but it's so nice that I want to mark it. There's a point during every walk with a friend where, without fail, I look up at the sky or the view and go, this is nice, isn't it? 
Sometimes I do this several times, and none of my friends have disagreed with me yet, but I think being this determined to announce how fun things are is a bit weird, especially when it's pissing it down. When everything seems lost and all the news is bad and it feels like we're stuck in tightly knit webs of stress and productivity and only looking out for ourselves, I'm so happy to be able to walk with other people. Walking is simple and inexpensive and often lovely. And sharing this is a tiny but important act of resistance. It's a refusal to stop. I promise to keep going together and make sure we aren't left behind. I'm walking through St Peter's Square in Manchester, and it's quiet. Perhaps it's early morning, perhaps it's late at night, maybe it's raining, but for whatever reason, there's no one around. As I walk, I find myself surrounded by hundreds, thousands of ghosts haunting this space, making sure they're not forgotten in a hurry. They carry signs and banners. Their voices are loud, angry, unrelenting. Sometimes I was with these ghosts, Sometimes I was just passing. Sometimes I saw what they were about and I left pretty sharpish. One of the most visible, most common types of protest is a march. Why do we choose to walk together in this way? We come to be counted, to be part of something bigger. To stand up for a cause, a belief, to register our dissent. Finding a group that share a belief as strongly as you do, enough to show up, is electrifying even though there are many different reasons for attending a protest. I wonder, what kind of protests have you been to? What do you believe in enough to turn up for, to stand for hours for, to make sure you're seen and heard? There are many kinds of walking protests. As well as marches and demonstrations, processions and parades are inherently political. They're about taking up vast amounts of space, being visible, being together, being one immovable, inseparable mass. Parades can be celebratory or commemorative, but whatever the cause, they say, you can't move us. We're here and we're going where we want, even if, in reality, they're highly controlled. Walking as protest is about movement. People move through space as one, like a flood. It's an extension of the feeling of when we walk with friends, but magnified a thousand times. When we're together, we're unstoppable. But when the walking stops, when protesters are blocked or kettled, there's no movement. We've been talking about protests a lot more in the last year for a few reasons. We've got ever-increasing access to news and social media, so we're perhaps more aware of injustice. We definitely find it easier to get information about where and when and how to protest. Many people have spoken about the pandemic as a possible turning point a chance to reimagine how the world might work, how we might look after people better, how we might make real change. We've also been talking a lot more about protests because of visible backlash to it. In the last year, there have been several high-profile instances where protests have been violently over-policed, from horses charging at Black Lives Matter protesters in June, to police aggressively breaking up a vigil for Sarah Everard, to legal observers being unlawfully arrested, at protests against the proposed police, crime, sentencing and courts bill. This bill, if it's passed, 
will criminalise protest amongst other things. People that take part in demonstrations that are deemed to be causing annoyance could be punished by up to 10 years in prison. And the flimsy definition of annoyance means it could be applied to almost any kind of protest. We have a right to free assembly and association, as set out in the European Convention on Human Rights. A society where people can't make their voices heard when they need to is not a free and democratic one. Sometimes, the means of the protest is the goal. On the 24th of April 1932, the famous Kinder Scout mass trespass took place, when hundreds of walkers flocked to the highest point in the Peak District to highlight the fact that workers were denied access to open countryside as private landowners wanted to retain rights to them to shoot grouse for a few days each year. Was it successful? Arguably, the Kinder Scout mass trespass led to the 1949 National Parks legislation and the establishment of the Pennine Way and other long-distance public footpaths. But years before that, in 1896, there was another mass trespass on Winter Hill in Bolton. A reported 12,000 people marched together, led by a brass band, to reclaim a public right-of-way that had been closed by a private landowner who thought walkers were a nuisance. The day wasn't an immediate success. The leaders of the march were bankrupted by legal fees and walkers didn't gain access properly until the 1930s when the council bought the land. Change might not have been instant, but this action had a huge impact on the public's right to access private land via footpaths. And these marches are still commemorated year after year by people following in the original protesters' footsteps. These walks are about claiming access to land, about turning up to claim a right to walk there. But, as we know, just because you're allowed to walk in public space doesn't necessarily mean you're safe or welcome. In 1977, after the Yorkshire Ripper attacked and murdered several women, Reclaim the Night marches took place in Leeds and around the UK, where women walked to highlight the dangers they faced and to protest the unhelpful police response to the murders. Police were widely criticised for telling women to stay indoors after dark which effectively placed women under curfew, didn't do much to keep them safe, and shifted blame and responsibility for the attacks onto victims. Reclaim the night marches have been happening ever since, taking back the streets for women, if only for a night. Walking is often utilised as a form of non-violent civil disobedience. It's simple and it's peaceful. But is it effective? The biggest recorded protest in recent history was on the 15th of February 2003, when up to 10 million people gathered to protest the impending invasion of Iraq. People marched in more than 600 different locations, including a small group of scientists in McMurdo Station, Antarctica. Despite being so big, you could say these protests failed in their main aim. The Iraq war went ahead regardless, but things aren't necessarily so clear-cut. It is still devastating that governments didn't listen to protesters in 2003 and went ahead with the long and terrible war. But did the protests against the Iraq war have other tangible impacts? Depending on who you talk to, the protests politicised an entire generation or led that same generation into a life of political apathy. Some people argue that it had a noticeable effect on the level of public scrutiny of politicians. Some people think it achieved nothing. 
Is it enough to just loudly and visibly register your dissent? Sometimes, protests don't have such specific aims. Pride parades begun as a commemoration of the riots at the Stonewall Inn in New York in 1969 when, tired of harassment and targeting, LGBTQ activists fought back against the police. This was a turning point in the queer rights movement and galvanised the fight for equality. Since then, Pride events have been about LGBTQ people being together, being visible and being proud. It's a way that we've fought for tolerance and acceptance. Pride subverts shame. I remember the first Pride parade I went to. And I remember how disappointed I was that there wasn't really any walking to do. Throughout its short history, Pride has changed from being a walk, a march, to a static activity where we watch other people walk. Or more so, watch other people drive floats and lorries and buses and police vans. Over the years, more Pride events happen, more people turn up and stand up for who they are, more people accept us, but the events themselves have been wildly transformed. The cynical part of me says that instead of being a radical protest, parades have been assimilated into capitalism. They're a conveyor belt of banks, supermarkets, corporations, police and weapons companies that have created a rainbow version of their logo, but ignore, exploit or harm LGBTQ people for the rest of the year. Registration fees mean it's often too expensive for many community organisations to march. And they're not free from opposition. There are always a group of counter-protesters, however small. Sometimes this opposition comes from within. The 2018 Pride Parade in London was protested by a group of people spouting transphobic rhetoric. There's a horrible irony in that the fight for queer rights was led largely by black, brown, trans and sex worker activists who continue to be marginalised within the LGBTQ community today. If Pride's about inclusion and tolerance and acceptance, there is still work to do. Who is welcomed and who is excluded from marching in Pride is still very much a question of equality. Protests where people turn up, walk together and then peacefully disperse are often described as good kinds of protest. Ones that the authorities can take seriously and that deserve respect rather than an aggressive reaction from police. But the first Pride was a riot. The suffragettes used to blow things up and cause a huge amount of property damage. The poll tax was repealed after widespread rioting. Riots are what happen when there are few options left when people are angry and backed into a corner and have no other way of making their voices heard. I'm not advocating for violence, but it's important to acknowledge that many of the rights we take for granted were hard fought for and that the authorities didn't listen to peaceful protest. And as we've seen recently, the reaction to a protest is not dependent on how peaceful it is. Sometimes quiet vigils are violently torn apart and sometimes thousands of people dangerously protesting a lockdown are left alone. Sometimes it's the causes themselves that determine what the reaction will be. It's unfair to write off a protest as unreasonable because it's motivated by anger, when that anger comes about from systemic violence and injustice that simply can't be matched by the privilege of turning up and staying polite.
change ever sudden. Sometimes we can pick out points where it happens quickly, but often it's more of a shift, a gentle, gradual stepping towards process. The results are visible to us, but there's movement we don't usually see, relentlessly working to put one foot in front of the other, even when the path isn't straightforward. The main thing is not to get stuck. Good things happen when we walk with other people, when we share space and take responsibility for each other. When we walk together, when we march, we cross boundaries, literally and figuratively. We cross streets, squares, neighbourhoods, boundaries, borders, rules, lines. We redefine and reclaim these spaces for ourselves, for each other and for our shared future. We've reached the end of our walk now. Thank you for coming with me and listening and being there along the way. It's been a pleasure. I think I'm going to put the kettle on now. Have a good rest. I hope there's a cup of tea somewhere in your near future too. Take care and keep putting one foot in front of the other.